Welcome to another episode of The Quantified Body. I'm your host, Damien Blinkinsop. This is the show where we look for tools and tactics, the biggest high-impact levers we can use to improve our health performance and longevity to live longer. We do this always from a quantified perspective, looking for evidence to back up the opinions out there to make sure they're really going to generate results for us. We look to scientists and scientific researchers who've done studies with evidence, or we also look to the experiential, the N equals one experimenters, the biohackers, the citizen scientists who have looked at some data, tracked some data to back up their own experiences. Before we get into today's episode, I want to give a quick shout out to Neil as thank you for his iTunes review in Canada. Neil says, much needed source on systemic health. Damien does a fantastic job of lining up thought leaders, practitioners in the space of overall health from a quantitative and N equals one point of view. Damien is effective at getting to the crux of the issues from a layman's point of view while keeping the discussions grounded in the quantitative. I really appreciate these remarks because I kind of struggle to make sure that I'm getting to a layman's point of view. So it's great when I see these kind of reviews. Glad to hear uh, that I'm hitting the point there. And Neil also says anyone like I am approaching 50 or facing toxicity or healthy people wanting to be healthier will appreciate this show. My favorites so far are Dr. Chris Shade and the discussion on magnesium. Bravo, Damien. Keep up the good work, Neil. Thanks so much, Neil. Not only is it great and very helpful to do iTunes reviews because they help us to get the word out more, but it really keeps me motivated. I love to see these kind of comments and I love the feedback also so that I can carry on working the show. So keep them coming. Now, today's show, it's a very much experience based episode where we talk to someone who has run many, many, many of his own experiments on himself, in particular where it comes to endurance training. We dig deep into endurance training today. We look at many other case studies with all of the biomarkers to back it up. As you'll see, today's guest is very much at home with quantifying his results to add evidence to back up his results, making sure he can repeat them. Today's guest is Ben Greenfield. He has 11 years experience coaching athletes and fitness professionals, and he competes throughout the year in competitions that emphasize endurance. He's a top-ranked triathlete. He competes as a Spartan athlete, very tough contest there, and a multiple Ironman Hawaii finisher. So he's very much a doer, and he's trying to push the edge on his performance continuously, as we'll see in the interview. He has a New York Times bestselling book called Beyond Training, Mastering Endurance, Health, and Life, which was published in 2014. And he also, if you haven't checked it out already, has a top-ranked iTunes fitness podcast called Ben Greenfield Fitness. And he was nice enough, actually, uh, around a year ago to invite me on to have a chat about some of my stuff before. So it's really great to connect with him again and have him on my show. And obviously to dig deep into a lot of the details of what he's been doing. And there's a lot. We'll look at endurance training, optimization. What are the highest impact tools you can add to get that little more out of it? Ketogenic high fat diets. Uh, Ben's done a lot of work there and how to apply them to endurance training and get the most out of them and the pitfalls to avoid and to really dig deep into the biomarkers he's using, he's looking at for the people he's coaching, how to use them to track performance, the ones that give you the biggest insights and actionable takeaways. As usual, to get the transcript and the summary of the big takeaways, the biomarkers, the tools and the tactics, you can go to 
thequantifiedbody.net forward slash episodes and pick this episode out there. If you want it all in your email inbox every time we put out an episode, just go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there, and it will automatically come into your inbox like magic. Now let's meet Mr. Ben Greenfield. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In The Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. And I got to ask you, is, is it Damien or Damien? Or Damien something else? Or Damien. <laughs> it depends where you come from, I Damian. guess. Damien. Okay, just checking. Yeah. I don't want to stick my foot in my mouth. Yeah, you can call me Dam. I tell people to call me Dam. Just there we go. I will questions. just sound like I'm cursing the entire episode. Like, <laughs> yeah, but it even works in Asia. Um, tried and tested. Nice. I mean, you got a free letter name. That works well. Yeah, totally. Ben. So, Ben, you're into triathletes, Ironman, and basically the way I look at you is you go around searching for tactics and tools to give you an edge in these areas that you're interested in. Is that a fair kind of backstory to who you are and what you're doing? Yeah, I do a lot of that, I guess, like N equals one, guinea pigging myself, going out and doing crazy things like training with the Navy SEALs or doing these Spartan races or Ironman triathlons, things like that. But then... I also uh, think I, I learned just as much via a lot of like the coaching and consulting that I do just because people, people typically come to me for one of two reasons. They either want to do some crazy feat that's completely unnatural for the human body to do. Like they want to go, whatever, run a hundred miles in the wilderness or something like that and figure out how to do it without destroying themselves. And so my job is to figure out how to do that from a nutrition and a, a physiology and an exercise standpoint, or they come to me because they basically want to live as long as freaking humanly possible and want me to manage how do you sleep when you want to do something like that? How do you exercise? What do you measure? What do you pay attention to on your blood and your gut? And so there's that kind of like biohackiness that I get into. And I got to admit for me personally, it's a little bit of both, right? Like I certainly do want to live as long as possible, I also want to do as many crazy events as I can during the process, see as much as the world as I can at the fastest pace possible. And so for myself personally, I'm doing a little bit of both, but sometimes people will come to me and want to do something that I know nothing about. And so I got to go and learn it. And so part of it is that too, that, or if it's not coaching someone, it's writing about that, right? Cause I, I do a lot of, of writing uh, recently, you know, like this morning published a big article on my website about how to use marijuana to get performance enhancing gains. And I never really would have delved into that if I hadn't been asked by so many people, especially here in the US with the growing legalities, like, how, like can can I use this if I'm exercising, you know, that type of thing. So a little bit of everything. The, yeah, great. So how event that started the whole Ben Greenfield Fitness podcast and the, and the blog and everything, how'd you get involved in that? Because you're obviously very passionate about it. Yeah. Well, there's, I mean, like I get that question a lot and frankly, like, like nothing against you, right? But it annoys me <laughs> because like people say, oh, when did you decide to do this? When did you decide to do that? Like I never make decisions, right? Like I don't have a 10-year business plan. I don't have some come to Jesus moment where I decide, oh, hey, I want to learn how to exercise. It's just like I live my life, right? Like I do things that I'm passionate about or that other people who I'm helping are passionate about. 
and tend to to fall into whatever I might fall into based on that, right? Like I'm I'm getting into hunting right now, and before that, uh, well, well, specifically, you know, like bow hunting and, and hunting competitions. Before that, obstacle racing. Before that, Ironman triathlon. Before that, water polo. Before that, bodybuilding. Before that, I was a collegiate tennis player, and I was just like life is a series of chapters and moving targets. It's never just like one commitment to do one thing. But I would say to give you a rough answer to your question, the very first time I decided to do something a little bit more endurance oriented, which I would define as something that has an attrition rate. You don't see people dropping out of baseball or cricket games, right? Because of of like fatigue and heat stroke and lack of, of nutrition. Like that's very rare. But you see it all the time in like marathons and you know, Ironman triathlons and things like that. So I would say the first time I kind of started to get into that side of, of sports would have been my first uh, Ironman triathlon that I did back in the city of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho in 2007. And up until that point, I'd been primarily like a explosive power athlete, right? Like bodybuilding and tennis and stuff like that. But um, my girlfriend, who is now my wife, was a runner. She ran uh, cross country for University of Idaho. And so I kind of had to, to take up running to a certain extent just to be able to woo her. And uh, she drugged me to a triathlon one day. And she actually had me run the running leg of the triathlon, which hurt like hell. I was a bodybuilder. My boobs were bouncing up and down and my low back was locking up and it was horrible. But it kind of got me interested in like this high that you could get from endurance sports. And so I wound up doing a few triathlons and then doing what I would say is the biggest mistake for anyone who wants to avoid getting into endurance. That is, I went and watched an Ironman triathlon. And after watching Ironman and watching these these intense feats of physical performance and the huge feeling of satisfaction and self-completion that these people were experiencing as they threw up their arms when they crossed the finish line, I was like, I want that. I want to experience that. And so I signed up for an Ironman and began taking everything that I'd been studying, right? Like I... I at that point had a master's degree in exercise physiology and nutrition. And I was able to start applying that stuff to my training and experimenting with, with a lot of what I was finding in research and sports science and seeing what worked versus what doesn't. For example, all laboratory studies or most of them done by the white coats in their little labs will tell you that, well, the body can take on about 200 to 250 calories of fuel during exercise, like you can oxidize 200 to 250 calories of carbohydrate while you're out exercising. But for anyone, especially anyone who's above about 150 pounds who has tried to go out and do an Ironman triathlon, you completely bonk after about five hours on that number of calories. And you technically need about twice that in order to be able to to get by in an Ironman race in most cases. And so you know, that's a situation where, oh, hey, what they're saying in the lab and textbooks actually doesn't work once you get out in real life and you try this stuff in the streets, in the trenches. So that's been kind of fun too, right? Like figuring out from research what works and what doesn't. Right. Yeah, we often talk on here about how N equals one experiments are often going to be different to the the research uh, for a variety of reasons, like you know the ones you brought up and the, the use of averages and other things like that. So anyway, in terms of endurance training, uh, since we're there, what kind of biomarkers have you found to be the most useful to track, you know, your performance or to track, what do you track around your capabilities for endurance training and see as important? Oh, for endurance specifically? Um, yeah. Yeah. So for endurance specifically, that's a great question. 
So one would be your your level of HSCRP, which really is just, that's just for exercise in general, right? Like high sensitivity, C-reactive protein, just to make sure that your levels aren't straying too high above 0.5. Um, and, and the reason for that. So that's kind of your benchmark. You try to keep them under there. Where do yours tend to hover around? I actually fall below 0.2 now for HSCRP, um, probably because I, I eat a very anti-inflammatory diet you know, very clean. And I won't insult your listener's intelligence by defining what a clean diet or an anti-inflammatory diet is because it's pretty easy to go out and figure that stuff out with Dr. Google. But I eat very clean. I also use a lot of natural anti-inflammatories, right? Like I make ginger tea and I use a ton of turmeric, usually combined with black pepper to increase the efficacy of it. And I use curcumin and I consume a lot of very dark and colorful vegetables with very limited amounts of dark and colorful fruits and wild caught fish and fats and things that, that really help with inflammation. And then I'm also very careful with my training, right? Like I do extremely focused and intense but short bouts of training with a specific purpose. I never go out and just like pound the pavement for the hell of it, which is a great way to build up a lot of voluminous training-based inflammation. And so I have I have a very precise dialed-in training program that also includes things that help to mitigate inflammation, like foam rolling and cold soaking and these things that, that can help to kind of remove a lot of these byproducts of metabolism that can create inflammation. So inflammation is, is a biggie, you know, that, no one's obvious, honestly, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that if you keep your inflammation under control, it's a, it's a good thing. So a few others that I'll pay attention to uh, for endurance, uh, when we're talking about labs, as far as blood goes, TSH, uh, preferably a full thyroid panel is pretty prudent to pay attention to simply because high level endurance training can inhibit conversion of inactive to active thyroid hormone. And because of the high amounts of cortisol that can potentially be produced through an improper training program can stress the body out enough to where you experience some hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis insufficiencies, particularly high cortisol creating a feedback loop that reduces the conversion of inactive to active thyroid hormone and thus an increase in thyroid stimulating hormone. So your body churns out a bunch more thyroid stimulating hormone to try and get more T4 present, even though a lot of that T4 isn't getting converted into T3. And by monitoring TSH, if you see a pattern or a rise in TSH, many times it's concomitant with an increase in cortisol and stress and uh, often also accompanies uh, not enough eating period. Sometimes not enough carbohydrates is the biggest culprit, but in many cases, just not enough damn calories, period. Damn, not referring to your first name, but to <laughs> the curse word, just so we're clear. That's another one is TSH. Um, cortisol I alluded to, but when we're looking at a hormonal panel, I also like to pay attention to sex hormone binding globulin because you know the body has this interesting mechanism, right, to where when it's stressed out, when it's in a time of famine, in a time of need under high amounts of stress, doing a lot of migrating, a lot of moving with low amounts of calorie intake, the last thing you want the body to do is produce a bunch of babies at that point. And so sex hormone binding globulin often rises simultaneous to cortisol to inhibit the, or well, not to inhibit, but to keep total testosterone bound and keep it from being available as free testosterone. So even if your if your testes are working just fine, or your pituitary gland is working just fine, obviously talking about the males more than the females now, um, and and even the Leydig cells in your testes are producing testosterone just fine. If sex hormone binding globulin levels are really really high, that's all for naught. 
And so that's another important one to keep an eye on. Um, and, and that's typically addressed by addressing cortisol. Right. So why would you look at SHBG versus like free testosterone or, you know, that, that marker, the bioavailable? Well, because if free testosterone is low, but if you look upstream, perhaps it's because total testosterone is low because the, the Leydig cells in your testes are not producing enough hormone because you've got low levels of luteinizing hormone. In contrast to that, perhaps your luteinizing hormone production is fine. Your Leydig cells are producing enough testosterone just fine. Your total testosterone is high, but it's more of a cortisol issue than it is like a central nervous system issue or a glandular issue. So that's why that's why you test that versus just looking at free testosterone. So basically, like free testosterone could be many. There's more reasons behind it, but the SHBG is like more specific to endurance and the specific dynamic. Yeah, really two reasons behind it, right? Either you aren't producing enough total testosterone, or you are producing enough total testosterone, but it's not getting converted, right? So those are really the two main things to look at. So are you looking at the standard reference ranges for that, or do you look for something a bit more precise? A lot of times you have to look at, at symptoms synonymous because standard reference ranges are going to vary widely. I've worked with a lot of endurance athletes who have very high libido levels, show no signs of overtraining, have very robust nervous systems, high heart rate variability, low cortisol, and even low sex hormone binding globulin, but their total testosterone is in like the high 300s, wow. right? Which is not for like a bodybuilder or whatever. You know, like they, they would scoff at that and say, oh, that's rock bottom low. Even though a lot of times hypogonadism is, is levels below 100. And then you'll get many people who just feel like freaking crap at, at 300. And some people will be closer to 500. Some people will need levels of 700, 800, or even 1,000. So it kind of depends. It varies widely. I suspect based on genetics is a big part of it. So ultimately, it's really tough to hold things up to reference ranges. I mean, you can ballpark it, right? You can say, well, if total testosterone is starting to get below 300, that's where we would really start to get a little bit concerned. But it really is kind of tough. A lot of times it's a moving target based off of a, a cluster of other symptoms. If someone's complaining of low libido and low motivation and lack of energy, et cetera, and their testosterone is at 400, well, that's a pretty good sign that 400 is not going to be adequate for them. So I know that's that's one of those deals where it's like total soft science, but it does really depend. That's one of those it depends answers, but that that is definitely a variable that I will uh, that I'll look at. Liver enzymes is another one, like alkaline phosphatase, aspartate aminotransferase, the, the ALT, the the uh, AST, some of these liver markers just because a lot of times they can be uh, elevated when excessive exercise is present. And so that's another one to pay attention to. It doesn't have to be excessive exercise. Sometimes it can be alcohol, pharmaceutical intake, things of that nature. But liver enzymes are another one that I'll look at. Kidneys, a lot of people say to look at kidneys, but frankly, it's very rare for me to see an athlete who doesn't have slightly elevated creatinine and blood urea nitrogen levels, which are two common markers in the kidneys that a physician will get concerned about if they see elevated, but that are very common to see elevated if an athlete is exercised anywhere in the 48 hours leading up to a blood panel. So, you know, as long as creatinine levels aren't much higher than about 1.1, and as long as, as blood urine nitrogen isn't through the roof, and I apologize, but off the top of my head, I don't remember the, the lab reference ranges for blood urine nitrogen. The reason being that I do most of my coaching for blood panels with a, a company called Wellness FX. That gives me more of like a, uh, it's basically more like a, a dashboard with graphs more than it is hard numbers. So occasionally I'm looking at graphs more than I am numbers. 
Um, but the uh, and they just have those red zones. So yeah, exactly. They've got like red, yellow, green, which which actually annoys me some of the time because they'll flag high LDL as red when I purposefully try to get my LDL high. <laughs> so there's some issues with the whole red, yellow, green type of type of quantification. But anyways, blood urea, nitrogen, and creatinine. Even though a lot of people talk about those, they're not super duper important in my opinion because they're always going to be a little bit elevated. Vitamin D. That's another one that I'll look at just because of its importance. You know, as you can suspect, a lot of these aren't just specific to endurance. They're specific to exercising, period, just as a, as a hormone and a steroid. Vitamin D is another important one that I'll look at. And then as far as uh, other things, I typically will have most of the athletes who I work with or the people I advise do at least once a year a full gut panel, you know, like a comprehensive gut panel that includes parasitology, measurement of pancreatic enzyme production, measurement of yeast and fungus and any type of bacterial overgrowth in the digestive tract because I find that especially when you're jogging your body up and down for 10 plus hours while racing, having a really, really good gut and and GI system and very efficient digestion is incredibly important. And so I will look at things like presence of yeast or fungus, right? Like candida albicans or the presence of H. pylori, or absence of hydrochloric acid, or absence of pancreatic enzymes, or overgrowth of specific bacteria, or lack of short-chain fatty acids in the digestive tract, in the colon, and a lot of those things that that tend to influence an athlete's performance or their feelings of well-being. So that's another thing I'll pay attention to. Right. A lot of people wouldn't think of that as something performance-related, more like a chronic issue related. Have you got any case studies where you saw people basically not performing, but not actually having any negative symptoms in terms of GI distress or anything that they noticed? But that when you put through these tests, uh, some negative results came. Sure. Now we're delving a little bit more deeply. And I mean, obviously, <laughs> explosive diarrhea halfway through a marathon can be a good sign of digestive enzyme insufficiency. <laughs> but so can, for example, you know, vitamin B12 or vitamin D deficiencies, or even if you go more advanced and run like an, an, an organic acids profile or an amino acid profile severe imbalances of a lot of micronutrients. Well, if you're not digesting your food efficiently, for example, if you're not producing adequate hydrochloric acids, you're not activating pepsin to break down proteins uh, beginning in the stomach and moving on into the small intestine, then you're going to A, have undigested protein fragments winding up in the bloodstream causing some autoimmune issues, and that can include fuzzy thinking, which no athlete wants. Uh, But then you also can get amino acid deficiencies, right? Like deficiencies in the ability to create neurotransmitters and also deficiencies in the ability to repair and regenerate skeletal muscle tissue because you aren't breaking down the proteins that you're eating. And the same could be said for something like inflammation in the digestive tract from wearing down of, of the of the microvilli. So perhaps you're not producing adequate levels of lactase, right? So you've got some some lactose issues and bloating and gas, or you've got inflammation that is resulting in malabsorption of fat soluble vitamins. So vitamin A, D, E, and K aren't getting absorbed properly, or bacteria aren't helping you to produce those, and so you experience uh, hormonal deficiencies or steroid deficiencies. And so, yeah, the gut is incredibly important. And that's one of the things I've been kind of like getting on companies like Wellness FX, for example, to do is, is to not just use the, the strategy of blood testing, but to also really pay attention to the gut. I mean, in an ideal scenario, what I would like to see is a done-for-you system. And, and for me right now, what I do is just 
kind of string this together for the athletes who I work with, but a done for you system where you get your blood testing, you get your gut testing and you get your genetic testing. So we can look at everything from genetic SNPs to bacterial imbalances in the gut to all the blood and biomarkers and have all that done with either one panel or one service, right? Like that would be really nice because right now you got to go typically to, to three different places. You got to go to whatever DNA fit or 23andMe and you got to go to like direct labs or whatever, you know, Metametrics or GI effects. And then you got to go to wellness FX or wherever else. And then if you want to do like food allergy testing, well, then you got to throw in like a, like a Cyrex panel or something like that. And so maybe it's a first world problem to want all this stuff to be available in like one central location, but it certainly would be nice. Yeah. It's certainly early days from that perspective. There's a lot of specialized, it's still kind of specialized in, in terms of the labs. Each is in their little separate box and everything. Yeah. So in terms of the kinds of decisions you've made or you've advised a client based on some of these values, some of this data that's come back, what have been the kind of biggest changes that you've implemented to optimize training? You mean as far as training? So say the TSH came up too high. What did you do about that? Oh, okay. So for high TSH, obviously it's never a shotgun approach, right? Like it's never a multivitamin. So for high TSH, it may be looking at your carbohydrate intake. That's the first thing that'll look at, right? Even before you look at total amount of calories, you just make sure nobody's on like some low, like 40 gram per day carbohydrate diet, because frankly, a lot of the quote unquote, low carb or ketosis based diets that are out there were created for sedentary people, even like the bulletproof diet. Like I love the whole bulletproof philosophy, but it was written by a computer programmer, not by an athlete. And so the levels of carbohydrate and even the levels of calories in that diet have to be adjusted and modified for a hard charging athlete, especially an endurance athlete. And so right. otherwise uh, with caloric depletion and carbohydrate depletion, you basically lose a lot of your ability to convert inactive to active thyroid hormone. And in the case of calories, as you would deduce through common sense, when you send your body a message that calories are insufficient, but you're still requiring it to move a lot, your body downregulates metabolism. And one of the main ways it does that is by downregulating thyroid. So I look at carbohydrates, I look at calories, and then I also look at dietary intake of organ meats and fat-soluble vitamins, which can also assist with thyroid health. So in my case, because I did like an N equals one experiment about a year and a half ago where I did 12 months of ketosis, not cyclic ketosis, not cycling carbohydrates in and out throughout the day, but full on eating only five to 10% of my total daily intake from carbohydrates, very low carbohydrate diet too low in my opinion for most endurance athletes who want to maintain optimal levels of health elsewhere. Did you see negative negative effects from that over the 12 months? Yeah, and that's what I'm getting at with the with the thyroid. I, I started taking thyroid glandular extract. I took one called a Thyrogold, which is made from New Zealand cows. They're like an A2 cattle. A lot of A1 cattle has uh, proteins in it that uh, cause an immune reaction within the human body. But cattle that are bred uh, via uh, A2 or cattle that contain this, this A2 genetic profile, it's more biocompatible with the human body. And so I basically took a, a T1, T2, T3, and T4 combo, and that seemed to turn my thyroid around, but that was after I'd kind of already done a number on it. Yeah, so for thyroid, that, that would be an example of what I'd do with something like thyroid would be increased calories, increased carbohydrates, increased intake of organ meats and fat-soluble vitamins, and then for a really hard-charging athlete who insists upon doing something like restricting carbohydrates to tap into the performance-enhancing effects of ketosis, understand that you got to get on like extra help from the thyroid and just 
since your body's not going to make T3, dump it into the body and preferably get it from a whole source like levothyroxine or, synth or synthroid, but a source that contains other elements of thyroid in addition to just T3. So you're not creating an imbalance. Great. Well, connected with the thyroid issue, I was just wondering if you'd come across adrenal fatigue also. If that's ever come up with you or anyone else. Absolutely. Adrenal fatigue, gosh, there's like four chapters of my book on that alone. But uh, adrenal fatigue, well, what do you want to know about it? Well, well, first of all, have you, have you looked at some of the tests? I've done some of the salivary tests. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like an adrenal stress index is kind of gold standard, cortisol DHEA. If you look at the cortisol DHEA curve, that's much, much better when you're addressing something like adrenal fatigue versus a blood cortisol measurement which is just a snapshot. You want to see a moving target of salivary cortisol levels, preferably matched to salivary DHEA levels throughout the day. I was just thinking based on like its endurance exercise and it has this tendency to raise cortisol, that that would be more of an issue and something that you'd keep an eye on. Oh, does, does by monitoring the TSH, does that kind of take care of itself? If the TSH is all right, then you tend not to have an adrenal issue as well? No, not necessarily. You can still have adrenal fatigue and have a thyroid that's managed properly because what you would typically see in that case is someone is eating boatloads of calories and taking care of themselves from an energetic standpoint, but simply outputting too much energy, right? They're just like training way too much, even though they're supplying their thyroid with what it needs. There's just too much training still. And a lot of times you'll see inflammation high, but yeah, cortisol DHEA, that adrenal stress index can be a good measurement. And there are non- there are less quantitative measurements, right? Like you can do a pulse test where you look in the mirror and you shine a bright light at your eyes and your pupil should stay dilated. But if it stays dilated and then just starts flickering rapidly. Have you tried that one? I have, yeah. Because I was just wondering, I, I did try it and I found it a little bit difficult to judge. Yeah, um, it's certainly not in, as precise as a salivary measurement, yeah. But once you've done it a few times, you can definitely see the pupil and whether or not it's actually flickering versus staying dilated. If you look at it for long enough, it's just going to start flickering, period. But if it starts flickering after just a few seconds, that's typically a sign that your kidneys are not producing enough aldosterone, which is synonymous with or, or can can accompany adrenal fatigue. The other one is just the dizziness test, right? Like you, if, if you lay down or you, or you sit down and then you stand up quickly and you get dizzy, that can be a sign of blood pressure mismanagement that often goes hand in hand with adrenal fatigue. And again, these are like the super cheapo poor man's methods, but they can give you clues, right? And then there's um, temperature tests for thyroid, the Broda Barnes temperature test, where you do oral and axillary measurements of your temperature in bed every morning and keep a running graph. And if it's consistently low, that can be a pretty good indication that even if you haven't done a blood thyroid test, that your your thyroid might be having issues. So there are a lot of things. One of the best ones I like though is just pure heart rate variability, right? Like testing the interplay between your sympathetic and your parasympathetic nervous system by using something like a uh, Bluetooth enabled heart rate monitor and one of these heart rate variability apps and simply paying attention to whether heart rate variability is high or low on any given day. And if it's consistently low and you see consistent suppression of both sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system feedback, then that can be a pretty good sign that you're on the cusp of adrenal fatigue, illness, or injury. And so that's another really good one to pay attention to. And I do that one every day myself. Do you do it morning as soon as you wake up? Yes, that's gold standard because that's where most of the studies have been done on heart rate variability were five minutes resting in the morning. Right, right. I believe you use the HR, um, uh, use the, what's the name of the company? Sweepy? Yeah, Sweepy. Yeah, but because I want to build out that technology and add some features and stuff like that, I've actually white labeled their technology. And so that I use the app called Nature Beat now, but it's the Sweepy technology. Great, great. Yeah, she's been on the show. 
Yeah. So I was using that for a long time. And then I, I just recently started using iFleet because I also talked to the guys at iFleet. And it does have this um, other thing that they've just added recently. You might just want to check out. It's kind of interesting. It shows how high your energy levels are on a given day. So it kind of does this matrix thing. And so it shows you if you're not, if you're like in the bottom right corner, it means something a little bit different. So I've been checking that out. I'm still trying to understand what it means each day, but I do find when I'm at the bottom, low energy, uh, those days tend not to be good, even if I have a high HRV. So anyway, out of interest, what is your kind of HRV levels? Because you were thinking that normally endurance athletes have higher HRV, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, usually higher HRV, which isn't necessarily a good thing if you've got what are called HF to LF ratio imbalances. Like ideally, you want your HF to LF ratio to be pretty close to one. That's sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system feedback. And if parasympathetic nervous feedback, which would be your high frequency number, if that's super duper depressed and and your LF is really high, that can be an indication of aerobic based overtraining or vice versa. So ideally, if you've got high HRV, and a pretty close to a one-to-one ratio between HF and LF. That's what you want to go to. And you want both HF and LF to be like up in the thousands. That's a sign and symptom of, or, or a sign of a, of a really robust nervous system. So my values tend to be between about 92 and 98 with HF and LF values that vary between about 4,000 to 8,000 around in there. Generally with a one-to-one ratio, depending on what my previous day's training had looked like. And I, w- I would expect, for example, this Tuesday I'll, I'll do uh, CrossFit's Murph. And I'll do that with a 20-pound weighted vest on and just crush myself. And that'll take me like an hour to do. And I guarantee you my LF value will be like tanked the next day. But I also won't be doing any sympathetic nervous system training for like 48 hours afterwards. Hmm. So you recover within 48 hours? 48 to 72 hours, depending. You, these scores rec- recover for you pretty quickly? Yeah. But I mean, if I were to do something epic, right? Like usually something that gets you to the state of glycogen depletion. Or let's say like instead of MRF, I, I do double MRF or I do MRF with a 5k sandwich on either end rather than just a mile, then it can take me several days to recover for sure. If you had to pick one marker to basically optimize your endurance training by and and make decisions on, which one of the ones we've talked about would it be? HRV. Okay, great. No doubt. Well, just because it's easy, right? You don't have to give blood. And yeah, maybe at some point, once we've got the lab on a chip technology finalized and I can put a drop of blood onto a little dongle that'll plug into my iPhone and I can measure, let's say, testosterone cortisol ratios, maybe that will become a more valuable metric for me. But at this point, I would have to say something simple and easy to utilize and relatively inexpensive like HS or, or uh, not HSCRP, the, the HRV would be the one that I'd choose. If I had to choose like an actual blood biomarker, tough to say, tough to say. I guess I'd probably have to go with HSCRP again. Just because inflammation is generally going to be high when cortisol is high. It's generally going to be high when diet is crappy. It's going to be high when triglycerides are high. It's going to be high when omega-3 fatty acids are low. So that's a pretty good one to measure. Yeah. So it catches a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Basically, whenever something goes, starts going wrong. Yeah. Well, see, so you've referred to overtraining quite a bit over this as like something that you'd have to change. So HRV would be one of the first places you'd see overtraining. Are there any other telltale markers? And what do you suggest more to the point? What is it? Because you mentioned earlier that you do very, uh, is it short, intense kind of endurance exercises? And I think a lot of people think, you know, when they're thinking about endurance, they're thinking about very high volume kind of long duration activity. So how do you approach it and avoid overtraining? What are the top things you've taken in over time? First of all, 
one of the common pitfalls that people fall into with endurance training is doing the long voluminous training every weekend. It's very stereotypical that you'll see in, in a lot of athletes, the Saturday long bike and then Sunday long run, for example, or in the marathon or, you know, the Saturday long run. I've found that in most cases you can maintain endurance really, really well, unless you're like a professional athlete trying to perform at the cusp of, or the peak of, of performance, most people can can perform just fine with doing digging into the well like that really, really deep for like a death march or really long ride or something like that. You typically only need to do that one to two times a month, not every weekend. I'm a bigger fan of using shorter, very tempo-based intervals. So, so to give you an example, right, like for the Ironman triathletes that I work with, while their peers are out doing a five-hour ride followed by an hour-long run, my athletes will be doing two hours of 20 minutes at race pace followed by five minutes recovery, right? So, so they're very focused activity with a specific goal in mind. And then they'll finish that up with a 15 minute tempo run at a cadence of 90 plus, right? So it's all extremely high quality. And then once a month, they'll go out and do something big, something long, something voluminous that builds the mental tolerance to training, but that doesn't dig so deep into the well is doing it every week. And the reason for that is based off of the human body's natural slow twitch muscle fibers, the human body's ability to cool because we're upright and not covered in fur and hair, our ability to sweat rather than pant to reduce heat, and a cluster of other factors. We're pretty good at going for long periods of time. And when training for endurance, bigger limiters are things like power, speed, cadence, strength, the integrity of the fascia and connective tissue the intelligence to be able to use nutrients and calories properly and really pointing in one direction going for long periods of time is not that much of a weakness for the human body but the problem is that it's easy and people take pride and they're like oh i persevered today i did my three-hour run and my question to you is well yeah but what did you accomplish aside from being on your feet for long periods of time, which frankly, I could stand at my standing workstation, write an article for three hours and get the same amount of time on my feet as you just did out pounding the pavement. So it would be better in that case to do something with intervals at race pace for a shorter period of time, focus on cadence, allow enough time before and after for good warm-up, maybe some meditation and breath work, some good recovery. And so that's where the more intense, more quality lower volume approach, nine times out of 10 trumps the voluminous approach. The exception to that fact would be the person who has a lot of time on their hands to train, the professional athlete. Professional athlete, assuming they're using this 80-20 approach, it's called polarized training. 80% of your training is done aerobically with about 20% done high intensity. That approach works very well. And it is what a lot of the elite cross-country skiers and marathoners and cyclists, et cetera, will use. But what is important to understand about that approach is it requires many, many hours per day, right? That approach can require two to four hours per day of training and even more than that on weekends, for example. And the majority of folks simply don't have the luxury of time available to utilize that approach effectively. That in a nutshell is, is my approach to training I've got a couple of athletes who I work with who are more uh, what I would consider to be on the professional level who have that luxury of time. And I do train them with that aerobic approach where they're out doing long voluminous sets of training at a controlled heart rate aerobically, putting lots of, of time in the saddle or time on the pavement. But uh, it's, it's very few and far between that I'll recommend an athlete to train like that. Great. Great. Thanks. That's a great summary of it. 
I wanted to move on to, because I know you did this 12 months of ketogenic dieting. Could you talk a little bit about giving us an overview? What was your approach to that? What you were actually eating? And was there any specific goals to track over the year? Well, yeah, for that specific diet, that was for a study at the University of Connecticut that was done on uh, basically a, a group of athletes who followed like a, a high carb, low fat diet versus a group of athletes who followed like a high fat, low carb diet. And it was basically a measurement of fat oxidation during exercise. And they also did muscle biopsies before and after exercise to see the rate of glycogen use as well as the rate of glycogen replenishment following the post-workout meal to just see if the body does a better job at oxidizing fat or at sparing glycogen during exercise when you've eaten a high-fat diet. And it did turn out in that study that the athletes who followed the high-fat diet were oxidizing a lot of fat. Well, you know, what the textbooks tell you is that you can you can burn about 1.0 grams of fat per minute. And the group of athletes who followed the high-fat diet were burning 1.5, 1.6, 1.7 grams of fat per minute, literally rewriting the textbooks when it comes to how much fat you can burn during exercise. I haven't seen the muscle biopsy data yet to see how much glycogen conservation actually took place or, you know, whether or not the body became more glycogen depleted when using primarily fatty acids as a fuel. But ultimately, what that diet consisted of was really controlling carbohydrates, right? Like, whereas I would normally... And this is what I do now. I would carb cycle, right? Like I would do cyclic ketogenesis where, uh, or cyclic ketosis, where I don't eat carbohydrates all day long. And at the very end of the day, typically in a post-workout scenario with dinner, I'll eat anywhere from 75 to 200 grams of white rice, red wine, sweet potatoes, sourdough bread, you know, starch, you know, safe starches, not like pizza and ice cream, but you know, good, good carbohydrates. And the rest of the day, just high fat, moderate protein. Whereas in this full-on ketosis diet, it was pretty much just like things like bulletproof coffee and high-fat shakes and lots of coconut milk and coconut oil and heavy cream and MCT oil and seeds and nuts and just, you know, fats, 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 bone broth and avocados and olives and, and you name it. And frankly, in my opinion, it wasn't that enjoyable. Like to, to have to like not have sweet potato fries and not have even like coconut ice cream, right? It's got cane sugar in it. So you got to make your own with like chocolate stevia. And it's like, it's a little bit laborious and a little bit tough. But I mean, you know, at the same time, the endurance payoff was huge. Like the amount of focus that I had for long periods of time, my ability to just like be able to hop on a bike and ride for hours with no fuel at all, with just water. It's pretty profound because you produce all these ketones as a byproduct of fatty acid oxidation and they're used as a preferred fuel by, fuel by the brain, by the heart, by the liver, by the diaphragm while you're out exercising. And that's a, that's a huge boon to an endurance athlete. And like I mentioned, there's some blowback, right? Like the TSH can take a hit, the testosterone can take a hit, but ultimately it's a cool little biohack. If I could go back and do it over again, I would definitely start taking thyroid glandular earlier to stave off some of those thyroid issues, I would, like it's not legal, but I would really encourage folks to pay attention to testosterone. And I mean, like you can't use testosterone in a, in a WADA or a USADA or like an NCAA sanctioned event. But I mean, like my testosterone drops so much during that experiment with ketosis. I would say if you're not competing, I mean, use like use androgel or use some kind of a testosterone support because your testosterone is going to fall to pieces. And then the question becomes, well, is it really worth it to you if you're doing this and you're not even competing? Yeah. Did you feel, did you feel different? Oh, yeah. Because, you know, we talk about testosterone with things like anxiety, your drive, your libido, of course. Um, did you, so I don't know, did you get any kind of like low testosterone symptoms? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, even something as simple as only having to shave every four or five days, whereas normally <laughs> having to shave every one to two days. I mean, little benefit. things like that that you notice, yeah, potentially save money on razors. Yeah, libido, sex drive, number of times having sex per week, desire to have sex, um, quality of the erection, like all those kind of things. Certainly, they took a hit during ketosis. They, they weren't good. But that was, mind you, ketosis in the presence of high amounts of physical activity. Even doing like the, the quote-unquote low-volume approach, it's still a massive amount of work, right? Right. Like you're still working out 60 to 90 plus minutes every day and longer than that on the weekends. And you, know, you look at something like Dr. Terry Walls and her ketosis approach for managing MS. Well, sure. I mean, that's going to work just fine for managing MS and going on a walk with your dog every morning and maybe lifting easy weights, three sets of 10 for 20 minutes twice a week, right? But then once you jump into hard exercise. It's a whole different type of ketosis. Right, right. Just to be clear, were you getting better times? You know, were you, did you feel like you were competing better? Oh, I was competing way better. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But it's just the downsides to your lifestyle, to the, all the other things were too great to do this on a constant basis. In my opinion, yes, because I don't like being cold all the time. I don't like not having libido, you know? So again, I'm not saying you can't do it properly, even though it's way, way tougher once you get into training. But I think that you you basically have to use supplementation pretty intensively. Did you kind of see the benefits evolve and get much better over the month as the months passed? Or is this something someone could do on a month basis, one month on, one month off? And for exercise, you barely even see any benefits until you've been doing it consistently for about six months. Oh, wow. And the real benefits start to manifest after one to two years. But the other thing to realize is that right about the time I finished up the experiment, companies like KetoForce started coming out with like beta-hydroxybutyrate salts that could be consumed to elevate your ketone bodies, even in the presence of a lot of carbohydrates or, or glucose. And so it's possible that now since the experiment that I did, you could get the best of both worlds. And I actually have some bottles of like the beta-hydroxybutyrite salts and the resistant starches and a lot of the things that if I had to go back and do it all over again, I would try to get the best of both worlds, right? Like I would eat more carbohydrates, but then I would also hack myself into ketosis by consuming actual ketone bodies. The question there becomes a matter of long-term health and um, gut health and how that actually manifests in terms of actual symptoms or the way that you felt or even, you know, I, I would definitely pay close attention to blood and biomarkers were I to delve into that type of biohack. I potentially may. I could see myself, obviously, I'm, I'm at a point in my athletic career where I've still got a good eight years of hardcore performance left in my body. And I could see one of those years being spent utilizing a ketotic approach again, but with the incorporation of beta-hydroxybutyrate salts, resistant starches, even higher amounts of MCT oils, particularly like the C8s and the C10s, and a little bit more attention paid to ways to get into ketosis that go above and beyond just carbohydrate restriction and exercise. This is great, Ben. This is a wealth of information. In terms of the biomarkers you would track, you said you track some biomarkers if you're going to do this again. What kinds of ones that we haven't spoken about already would you look at? Did you track your ketones, like your blood ketones? Yeah, breath ketones. I mean, urinary ketones become uh, many times absent after a few weeks in ketosis just because you're utilizing your ketones. Blood ketones are accurate but expensive and invasive to test. And breath ketones are pretty, they're, you know, they're breath testing monitors like the ketonics device that you know, one breath and, you know, your ketones and you're good. So breath testing okay. is a really good way to go. As far as measurement of ketones, you look for values anywhere from 1.0 up to 
3.0 millimolars. You'll finish exercise as high as 7.0 millimolars. You will rarely see ketoacidosis, which would be like 10 plus millimolars. It's not really, it's a non-issue. I've, I have yet to see any athlete I've worked with go into ketoacidosis, right. which would be an actual deleterious biological state, not something you need to worry about unless you you are literally letting yourself become severely hypoglycemic. So, so again, is that something you sort of evolve over the months, like your ketone re- uh, ratings would get higher? Yeah, you get to the point where it's just super duper easy to get into ketosis. Yeah, and your ability to go for long periods of time without eating just goes through the roof. So ultimately, the biomarker, I would say, in addition to what we've already talked about, would be breath ketones. And then pay attention to triglycerides too, right? Because they've shown that compared to total cholesterol values, a better predictor of your coronary disease risk factors is your triglyceride to HDL ratio, specifically keeping that at one or lower in terms of your number of triglycerides versus HDL, but I found that some people will switch to a high-fat diet and have such a high intake of vegetable oils and even an, an imbalanced uh, high intake of, of animal-based oils, you know, like butter, for example, versus olive oil and avocados, their triglycerides go through the roof. And uh, pay attention to that trig to HDL ratio. You know, that's my advice is make sure that that thing isn't getting much above one. That'd be another important thing to pay attention to, on, on a, especially on a higher-fat intake. Great, great. Excellent, excellent points. So there's a couple of other things I noticed you've done in your, in your experiment. I read your book, of course. Um, one of the things that we've come across before, I spoke to Alan Cash from uh, Benagene, oxaloacetate. And I was wondering what you've done with that and if you tracked anything and, and learned anything about that. Yeah, obviously, if you talk to Alan Cash, your, your listeners can go back and listen to that to learn more about what oxaloacetate is. But in a nutshell, the reason that I used it was because it can increase the turnover rate of lactic acid into pyruvate um, and increase the rate at which lactic acid is shuttled back up into the liver to be reconverted into glucose. And so if you are eating a low-carbohydrate diet anyways, that by nature means you might not be taking as much exogenous glucose in or might not even have as high a level of glycogen stores but you can still take the lactic acid that you're producing as a byproduct of metabolic activity anyways and have that reconverted into usable glucose sources to have a glycogen sparing effect and to get a little bit uh, more intensity. And so the way that that would be achieved if you were going to, to increase the rate of that cycle, which is called the Cori cycle, would be via the use of oxaloacetate. And so I actually did use that. I don't use it right now. It's one of those things where it's just like I'd benefit from it. It's just one more supplement to remember to take. But I, I certainly used it through that entire ketotic experiment with the, uh, the oxaloacetate just to increase the, uh, the uh, conversion of lactic acid into glucose. Right, right. It sounds like it would help specifically in that ketogenic diet state when you're exercising. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, exactly. So you designed it that way. You decided to take it before. Or it was something like you came up with afterwards to help. I talked to Alan at one of the Bulletproof biohacking conferences. We talked about the physiology of oxaloacetate. And then uh, based on that, I just kind of had a little light bulb moment where I realized that if I was restricting carbohydrates anyways, that this was one more way that I could create endogenous glucose more quickly. Great, great, great. Cold thermogenesis. Do you still play around with that? Um, is there anything like, for instance, have you seen your HSCRP any time, potentially when you first started it or did it a bit more intensively change with that? Yes, I have not done a dedicated experiment with cold water exposure, cold temperature exposure, or the use of ice baths or cold showers to see their direct effects on HSCRP 
although a reduction of inflammatory cytokines has been observed in literature when it comes to cold thermogenesis and inflammation. What I use cold thermogenesis for is increased conversion of white adipose tissue to brown adipose tissue, simply because it's very difficult to kill fat cells, but you can convert fat cells into energy utilizing and heat producing tissue. And that's one thing that cold thermogenesis is good for. Uh, that would mean cold baths, cold showers, cold soaks, et cetera. Also very useful for increased production of endothelial nitric oxide synthase, which can cause your blood vessels to dilate much more readily, which is good for everything from exercise to sex to heating your body when it needs to be heated. And then uh, there's also uh, increased tolerance to the mammalian dive reflex, which is that activation of our sympathetic fight or flight nervous system in response to stress. And when you are able to withstand cold stress without taking that sharp influx of breath, that means that you have become more resilient and more resistant to subconscious activation of that fight and flight nervous system. You're better at controlling uh, stressful events that, that happen. And so what I do is I, I never take a warm shower. I do a cold shower in the morning, cold shower in the evening. I do once per week a 30-minute cold soak that gets me up to shivering level, typically needing to shiver for one to two hours afterwards in order to regain warmth. And those are the ways that I use cold thermogenesis. I also keep my house relatively cold. My office is at about 55 degrees. My home, typically I'll sleep at 60 to 65 degrees. And it's just a really, really good way to make yourself tough to burn fat and to increase blood vessel health. And it's just super simple. And, and frankly, the other cool thing is like when I go hunting or when I have long periods of time outdoors or when I'm at the beach and evening comes and I forgot my coat, I don't get as bothered, which is just kind of nice. You're just more, you're just more tough. It sounds like the only time it was, it was an issue when you were doing your ketogenic um, thing. And what was the issue there? Were you, you getting a lot colder or... Yeah, but that was because of thyroid, right? Uh, if you have hypothyroidism, cold thermogenesis is going to be very uncomfortable. Heck, even normal temperatures are you're colder during. So I was still doing cold thermogenesis then, but it was quite unpleasant, right? Like it was hard for the body to get warm again. Okay. All right. All right. Great. Some quick fire questions uh, just to finish off here. First of all, if people want to connect with you and learn more about you and what you're up to, where where's the best places? Twitter, your website? BenGreenfieldFitness.com. Because if you go there you'll find links to my Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, my blog, my podcast, etc. So that's a good place to go as like a, a portal. Great, great. And who besides yourself would you recommend to learn more about endurance training or some of the other topics we spoke about today, ketogenic diets and so on? As far as people who have their heads screwed on straight, who are paying attention to the research, I'd say three people come to mind. Number one would be Joe Friel. That's F-R-I-E-L. He's coached a lot of professional cyclists, but also has just been in the sport a long time and pays attention to the science and the research and has a pretty good unbiased view of things. Sammy Inkinen, who is a top age group for Ironman competitor, eats a higher fat diet, pays attention to quantified data, and is a smart, well-spoken person who performs well. And then uh, Dr. Peter Atia, who I would not say is on the pointy edge of physical performance, even though he's in much better shape than the average general population. He's not out doing Ironman triathlons or anything. But as far as the science goes, he probably knows the science better than just about anybody else when it comes to being able to speak to these things. And he also does quite a bit of self-quantification himself. So those would be three people that, that would be good resources for this. Great. Thanks so much for that.
Beyond everything, like all the biomarkers we've spoken about today, are there any other biomarkers you pay specific attention on a routine basis? I don't know where it's monthly that you feel that are important that we haven't spoken about. I'll, I'll finish with this because it's important. And many times in our type of circles, it's not talked about and it's not quantifiable to a great degree as far as I know. And that would be simply paying attention to your levels of gratitude every single day and multiple times per day. For me, I guess you could kind of quantify it at least six times per day. I'm grateful because I'm journaling. And at the beginning of the day, I journal three things I'm grateful for. And at the end of the day, I journal three amazing things that happened to me that day. So there's at least six times per day that I'm being grateful for things. And then I practice quick coherence technique, which is something you can read about at heartmath.org, which increases heart rate variability and decreases stress. And that's where you simply think of something that you love or someone you hold dear and you imagine intense feelings of gratefulness washing over your body and going into your heart after you you feel those feelings of gratefulness. Same thank you to people, saying I love you to people, randomly calling up people and telling them how much you appreciate them. If you listen to my voicemail, I ask people to end their voice message by telling me one thing that they're grateful for that day. It's certainly something that's not super duper quantifiable again, but it is one thing, you know, not a biomarker, but certainly something I pay attention to every day is gratefulness for being alive, for the people in my life, for the experiences that I've had, and for simply being able to take just one more breath. Excellent. Thanks for that. That's like not the typical, but definitely something really important. So I can, I can see how that'd be useful. I, I do a meditation on gratitude every morning too, and find that really, really useful. Uh, so Ben, thanks so much for your time today. It's been really stock full of biomarkers and hacks and everything. So it's, it's really been a great episode. Thank you for your time. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me on, Dan. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website theQuantifiedBody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.